from Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, a Vine Hair podcast conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in between our regular podcast episodes in order to focus on the stories and issues in the drinks world. Today, I'm speaking with Chicago-based wine educator and master sommelier, Jill Zamorski. Jill, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, wonderful to have you. Um, I, I will say that uh, off the jump, I am a, an avid listener of your podcast, which we'll talk yeah. about in a little bit. And uh, as I was mentioning before, it is interesting to do a podcast with someone who you listen to do a podcast. It's a little <laughs> like, I, I don't know if it's like Inception or I don't, so meta. It just, it's messing with me a little bit. Yeah. So so if I get thrown off during this conversation, that's the only reason why. <laughs> so let's let's start on a on a slightly more, I suppose, um, pardon the pun, sober topic. But you know, 2020 uh, has been a year for all of us, and it's been a year for everyone who is uh, involved in the restaurant industry. I think in one form or another, um, we've discussed that in many forms on both the regular Vine Pair podcast and through these next round conversations. But we haven't talked a whole lot about the sommeliers in particular and, and wine professionals in restaurants. And both you and I pre-COVID have worked in that capacity. And I'm just wondering, you know, maybe broad strokes first, what do you see going forward? I mean, now that we are in this period of time when people are getting vaccinated, the end isn't exactly clear when it will come, but seems like it is closer than the beginning. And, you know, what do you what do you see for sommeliers and wine professionals going forward? Well, I'm very hopeful. It's been obviously a, a horrible year and a horrible situation. And, and sommeliers specifically, you know, wine professionals in the hospitality industry have a unique situation where it's a specialized kind of niche position. I've always likened it to um, like sommeliers and pastry chefs. You can have a successful restaurant without either one of those positions, but having people in those positions will really enhance um, your ability to be profitable and your guest experience. But, you know, it's been said many times that they're the last ones to be hired back and the first ones to be let go because you can get by without them. That said, this has been such an interesting time because around the country, you know, laws have thankfully been changed very quickly to allow on-premise, you know, restaurants and hotels to allow for takeout and delivery, not just of wine, but also of, you know, cocktails and cocktail kits. And so it's been very interesting watching the adaptation process. And I think, and I hope, that when things return to a little bit more of a, a state of um, normalcy in terms of, you know, safe dining in restaurants and, you know, work on the floor again and, and that, that whole environment, I hope uh, that, that the positions will come back because I know far too many sommeliers who are unemployed or underemployed. So I hope that one, people will be reemployed in those positions. But I think, and I wonder and hope that some of the skills I think that people have um, kind of developed over, you know, this year, over these 10 months will sort of enhance and kind of further, uh, I guess, develop and develop them professionally, but further enhance their job, you know, their job skills and their job abilities. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I guess to me, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and, and I certainly have heard from, um, you know, peers, colleagues, friends, etc, throughout the industry, who have themselves been displaced, you know, laid off, furloughed, given a new set of responsibilities, etc, in this period of time. I do wonder, you know, we were kind of at this period into 2019, say, where the sommelier was kind of riding high. I mean, you know, between um, the the um, sort of positive associations that the title had from uh, the Somme films and just general kind of cultural cachet, 
you know, it was a period of time when, you know, I think there was this sort of sense that like, well, maybe, you know, maybe we, maybe it could be a, you know, kind of this, this piece of the restaurant industry that really was a thing for people to strive for. And, and I still think it can be that. I, my question is, and concern is that, you know, what I've heard from a lot of people that I've talked to is their fear is that we're going to go back to a period of time. We're like, yeah, okay, you can be the wine director, but you also need to be the general manager. You also need to be the, um, you know, you need to be the floor manager. You need to like that, that the idea of wine specialists in restaurants and maybe to, to come back to that pastry chef analogy, it's kind of like, well, yeah, you can be the pastry chef, but I also need you to work a station on the line. You know, uh, that might not be a viable thing for a pastry chef, frankly, but, but for some of the I think it's, you know, I'm just concerned. And, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this about the sort of, you know, subsuming of wine responsibilities in a restaurant into a larger set of, of job description, as opposed to sort of breaking it out as was maybe starting to happen in the latter part of this past uh, decade. You know, I, that position, that combined position, we, we sarcastically call it a somager, you know, a som, a sommelier and a manager combined into one. I've, I know that's like a necessary evil, um, but I also hate that position because those are two full-time jobs that are then squished into one person and one lower salary as a result. And I, I, I do hate that, but I understand why it's necessary. And I think that there have been some examples around the country of wine professionals who've really, and please, I'm going to try so hard not to use the word pivot. It's the most overused word <laughs> of 2020. I never want to hear it again unless it's in relation to basketball, but I've seen some examples of people adapting and really taking what the sommelier does, which is providing hospitable wine service and really kind of taking it next level. And sometimes in small restaurants, I've seen that like developing a wine club. And I know wine clubs can be a dime a dozen, but restaurants can be very theme specific. And so to to operate that, I think, is an interesting idea to do sort of a wine club or to do a little bit more of a guest service, uh, in-depth information sharing situation um, where there might be interviews with featured producers or winemakers or distillers whose products are, are heavily featured or partnered with the restaurant. And so I would love to see, you know, I, I would hate to see all som- sommeliers kind of pushed, like pushed into a job where they're, you know, only doing the wine aspect of things, you know, 25% of the time. But I think there's ways to kind of make the case that it's not just ordering, receiving, inventorying wine, that there are other things that a sommelier can do that will add value and, and add revenue. I think that, and I think that'll be critical, honestly, like you have to make that case for yourself. You know, you can't expect that it'll just be like, okay, <laughs> like you've got to fight for that. <laughs> I also think that there's something to be said about, you know, one piece that none of us really know at this point, because we're still in the still in the pandemic, even if it feels like we might be seeing the end of the light or at the light at the end of the tunnel, is that, you know, I think people, a lot of people's relationships with restaurants will have changed to some extent in this period of time, that, you know, people will have either, at least for a while, you know, maybe a greater appreciation of what they missed when restaurants were not an option, or at least were complicated for people to go to as opposed to, you know, a, a thoughtless thing. Um, and also, I think that, you know, we've gotten so used to engaging with not just friends and coworkers and family virtually, but also with with businesses and, and entities that we care about, you know, at least in a more um, abstracted, attenuated way than we than we had, you know, pre-COVID. And I think the point you make is a really valid one, which is that the the, the good wine professionals, the good sommeliers, et cetera, 
will find ways to continue to connect with guests even when they're not in the restaurant. And I think that's going to be a huge piece for for a lot of businesses, because I think it's going to be, you know, it, everyone has been reminded that, you know, um, you can't take that customer connection, that outreach for granted, because it's what's your lifeline when if things go, you know, sideways. And I think all of us know now they can go sideways and then go sideways kind of quickly uh, in ways that none of one anticipated. A hundred percent. And look, it's going to be hard, but I think that's one thing that hospitality industry workers generally and sommeliers for certain specifically have in common is like, there's some hustle there. And so I, I think it's just going to be one of those things where we're going to have to, to dig a little bit deeper and, and find the emotional energy to to wax creative and come up with some some new ideas. But it's going to take some hard work for sure. But, you know, nothing good ever came out of not you know, that's how, that's how you get good things to happen is hard work. It's yeah. And speaking of hard work, um, you know, a hell of a lot about it, probably in some sense more than you care to. Um, (laughs) and I think it's important in this conversation to, it would be remiss of us not to talk a little bit about the other piece of 2020 for sommeliers, which has been, um, the incredible sort of maelstrom of, of scandals surrounding the court of master sommeliers. And, and you, I mean, obviously were part of unfortunately this sort of initial i guess we would call it the the it, it shouldn't have been the sort of first uh crack in the ice or whatever but it was certainly a, a a seismic thing i mean much more so for you being one of the people directly involved in the cheating scandal as a as a innocent bystander i should point out not anything <laughs> other you. than that um whenever those words get thrown out that gets really messy i apologize but um but yeah uh, you were just happened to be taking your exam at the same time as other people who were perhaps cheating. Um, and uh, and then obviously this year, the really horrific, um, if perhaps not completely surprising, um, allegations and reports of widespread uh, sexual abuse throughout the court at the highest levels. And, and maybe even more than that, the very willing blind eye that the people within the master, many of the master sommeliers within the court turned to uh, the predatory actions of their fellow master sommeliers. So we can talk about this in kind of whatever dimension you want, um, or multiple dimensions, obviously, but I'm just curious, you know, first and foremost, how have you been, you know, how has this been sitting with you? Mm. Man, it's been, it's been very frustrating, because, because of what's happened over the past couple of years and my experience with the court of master sommeliers, I certainly have had every reason to just wash my hands clean of this organization, but I haven't. And I do feel that I've had to explain that to some people who do, you know, want to see it completely dismantled. And and I, I will say this, I won't make any excuses or any apologies. What those men did is horrible and there needs to be consequences, pretty severe ones. Um, I'm going to take out the pretty severe consequences. I'm not going to modify that at all. But I, I, I gained a lot through my the process of going through certifications with the Court of Master Sommeliers. It I didn't chase a pin. It led me to develop professionally, and it provided a, a roadmap for me. And I didn't experience what so many of these women did. So. I believe the women and we always have to believe the women, but I do believe that since some people didn't experience that, that, that means that there are some people who are in the organization that are good and decent and honorable. And for an organization that's primarily male, it's not like all the men are being accused. It's a, it's a subset. It's a subset of bad actors. And so I think that, you know, 
these this organization has not evolved the way the wine industry has evolved. And it started off 44 years ago as, as a certification body, but it's become so much more than that. And now it's something that people really identify with and, and not just master sommeliers. I mean, there are definitely master sommeliers who it's part and parcel to who they are and how they, you know, how they work. But for people all over the world, it's, it's been a, it's been a really important, impactful thing. And, I, I still think there's a place in the wine di- diaspora for what it does. The WSET, which I am also a part of that organization, is not the equivalent. It it's, has a different testing process, and it also tests different skills. And so I believe there's a place for it, but I think it needs to evolve, and we need to recognize and understand that it's not just an examination body anymore. And it, as something that people so strongly identify with, with any level of participation, it needs to understand that not acknowledging what's happening in the world around us with regard to racial and social, you know, unrest, that's not acceptable because it, that hurts people. And I wish the court is officially organized as a, a not-for-profit and I don't represent the court. I can't speak for the court. Um, but what are, you know, I, I have this conversation frequently these days. I'm like, what is this organization? Is it just a nonprofit? Is it a club? Is it an academic credential? Like, what is it? Because, Sometimes I feel that the people who are in charge of it for a long time really believe it to be so much more important than I think it actually is in the wine world. Um, that, you know, if, if it is just a credentialing organization and there are some people who have demonstra- demonstrably behaved so horrifically, boot them out. <laughs> like, like yeah. that shouldn't be hard. And I don't, I, I struggle to find what's so complicated and, and difficult about this. It's not like, I don't know, impeaching a president. Um, <laughs> it's It should be a little bit easier. Um, and I also think that one of the biggest disconnects is the speed at which things happen internally and the speed at which the external wine industry wants to see things happen. Because if we look at the court as a business, which people pay to take the exams, and we look at candidates for exams as customers, the customer base is not happy right now. And so we need to, we as, you know, as a company need to figure out how to reach our customer and how to not lose them and how to make them feel that there there's a return on their investment. And I think that there's just been a real disconnect with who our customer is now and, and what the wine industry really looks like and how this organization operates. And I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that with this new elected leadership I mean, I'm not trying to be ageist here, but it is a much younger um, group of individuals because some qualifications uh, for leadership were changed. And I think that some of these people are a little bit more in touch with the methods of communication and the speed of communication and the expectations of the industry. So I'm hopeful that things will improve, but oh, it's been a hot mess. I have a couple of uh, of questions I wanted to ask kind of to follow up to that. The The first one is that, I wonder, and I think a thought that struck me for for a while, really, honestly, since the since the issues with um, the master examinations in 2018, and, and maybe even before that, is you know one one issue that I think has plagued the court um, among the pub, maybe in public perspe- perception over the last couple of years, certainly within the sommelier community, is a sort of general level of secrecy that mm-hmm. seems unnecessary. And and I understand that to some extent you you need there to be a certain amount of secrecy surrounding 
an examination because obviously, you know, you can't tell people everything. There has to be some level of of uncertainty. Otherwise, you know, if you tell people exactly what's going to be on the test, I'm not, it becomes then a, a an examination of something other than the skill they're trying to test for. But I do think that that level of secrecy, as we've seen, has really been uh, exploited on multiple fronts. Um, it's part of what gave these predatory men power over women who were aspiring to achieve higher levels. You know, there was a sense, I think, not probably rightly held to some extent that that you that the these master sommeliers had you know a sort of secret knowledge that could improve or um you know sort of hurt your chances of advancement both ex- specifically on exams and also of course getting you know placement in exams and things like that but also it more broadly even for even for people who weren't uh, necessarily going to be victimized in that specific way you know there was a lot of um there is and was a lot of confusion and and I think sort of unnecessary confusion about the exam, the format, the kinds of things that we, one was expected to know, and really more than anything else, the fairness of the adjudication of those exams. And again, a lot of that was brought to the surface in 2018 when it became very clear to most everyone that it wasn't particularly fair, either how the exams were handled and certainly the aftermath of, of, a, of a cheating scandal, but also you know, I think that that always has been an issue. I don't know. Do you do you feel like it's possible to to conduct the the exams throughout the the levels that the court does with you know significantly less secrecy? Oh my gosh, yes. I this is the a thing that has been incredibly frustrating for me because I feel that again, if this is purely an examining body, like there is no need for this like supreme secrecy and like redacted minutes and all this garbage. Like it's it is, we're just a bunch of sommeliers. Like we're, we don't have nuclear codes. So I think a little bit is just self-importance and extreme. I just, I, I, I am not convinced, nor has anyone been able to convince me that the levels of secrecy that, that those who've claimed are necessary are actually necessary. That said, I've never, you know, actually seen an exam. Um, but I, I, I teach, um, and I teach classes of all levels with the wine and spirit education trust. And it's a very different organization. But I have, um, you know, the exams are graded by masters of wine, and I am not a master of wine, but I've certainly proctored exams and I teach classes. And that organization provides a pathway, a syllabus, um, study materials, and yet still, people still don't pass all of those exams. So there is a way to provide more direction, more guidance, more clarity, and more exam expectations. And it won't necessarily mean that there'll be 100% a pass rate, because I see that, you know, it, it, when you're preparing for an exam, People go down wormholes, and if you don't give them a roadmap of what is expected or reasonable, they will really – people can really take it to, like, kind of absurd levels of, like, I need to know this. And that's not necessarily helpful, but they have no one telling them, you know, stay the course. You're you're really veering off into minutia here. And the WSET's better about that. Um, yeah. I also think that, you know, throughout this whole pandemic, I've been searching for what I call, like, little silver linings, like little things to grasp at. and. While the pandemic and the subsequent unemployment of many master sommeliers has proved that a credential does not guarantee employment, one thing I've seen is that a lot of people um, at various levels of education are pursuing certification, just one, they have the time or just you know trying to keep engaged in what they're doing. And I've taken actually a couple of exams, um, one, to just experience them for classes I was going to teach. I've taken online exams and the level of security is really quite impressive. 
um, for both the WSET or like the Wine Scholar Guild. And so I know that these things are possible. Um, but I also feel that transparency is paramount because if you're not doing anything wrong, then what do you have to hide? And I, I agree. There are things in an exam, like if you think back to high school or college, you know, we had tests of varying styles there and teachers perhaps or professors may have prepared students for general expectations, but they didn't reveal the questions that they were going to be asking prior to the exam. So no one's expecting that. But you know, as someone, you know, blind tasting is part of both the WSET and the Court of Master Sommeliers, and there's never been a reveal of what the wines are. Not even, I'm not even talking about producer, but like vintage or variety or, you know, region of production, like that would be helpful. Because if you don't know what you should be focusing on, there are, you know, there's too many places for, for candidates to spiral off. And so I think more specific guidelines, more transparency, and more secure testing methods, I think are really, really important. I mean, just tests are administered by humans in in our case, and humans are fallible. And so there needs to be a backup. I mean, if it's just a candidate and, you know, two or three master sommeliers in a room, there needs to be something else. I mean, one of the best examples I can give for blind tasting, because I've done so many blind tasting exams, you walk into a room, you sit across a table from, you know, two or three master sommeliers, in more recent years, there's been another person in the back of the room observing, but that's still people listening to you. They can see who you are. They can see if you're visibly nervous, like there's possibility for innate bias there. But I think back to like middle school when I played the clarinet, you know, and I was not some sort of gifted musician, but I remember auditioning for like, I don't know, a municipal like concert or something. And there would be blind sight reading and you would walk into a room, there would be a curtain and behind the curtain was someone who would purely listen. And you would sit down at a chair. You couldn't see who was behind there, man, woman, what color, how old. And there'd be a piece of sheet music on the stand. And you would hear like a, you know, the beep of a timer and you would just have to sight read. You didn't even talk. And so there are ways where you can isolate the product of someone's, you know, what the, their work product is or what their exam product is, and it can eliminate or at least drastically reduce any sort of implicit bias. Because that's one thing I think that we've realized this year um, upon some introspection and, and examination is how important it is to to pay attention to all of the implicit bias and microaggressions that probably a lot of people in this organization and the organization, uh, you know, writ large uh, around us is not even aware of, but that that exist. I think one last thing I wanted to ask about this too is, and, and to come back to this issue of of fairness and, and secrecy is, you know, a, a question that I have because you're, you know, a person who has not only achieved a level of uh, master sommelier who's been heavily involved in in WSET, but also, you know, is is currently involved in education. You know, one one thing that I've always wondered about with the court in particular is, it has not often seemed to me, um, especially as I got a little further in that really, truly the goal was for me to succeed. And what, by what I mean, what I mean by that is that it's, it felt that in some sense, especially maybe in the period of time after the movie Psalm was released, which I think, you know, fairly is viewed as a, something of a watershed moment for the organization because it really fundamentally changed the, the, you know, the publicity, the, the level of um, acclaim and, and sort of just attention paid to, master sommeliers and the court of master sommeliers that 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 protecting the 
the pass rate such as it is, or the, the low pass rate became a point of pride and that, um, or, or even maybe a focal point. And maybe it's in those redacted minutes that none of us will ever see. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but that, you know, the, the exams were set up um, or, or were even perhaps administered in such a way where the, uh, the goal was, you know, kind of like, well, here's what we want the pass rate to be. How do we design the test? How do we administer the test to protect that? And and I will say this, this is me speculating wildly. This is not Jill. Mm-hmm. She can, she can tell me I'm wrong. She can come back to me. It's always been my belief that part of the reason the entire uh, set of results for 2018 were invalidated is because frankly, too many people passed and it is not. And that is to me, a load of horseshit and, and really unfair. And, and, you know, is that a little conspiratorial thinking maybe, but I, I, I am pretty confident uh, in saying that, that, you know, this isn't the first time that there have been questions about whether someone had had access to information beforehand. And it's, but it is the first time when 20 odd people passed. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that was uh, uh, taken as an invitation to um, to keep that pass rate down. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that, and I'll explain why. Um, I could be wrong, by the way, and if that if that was the case, that would be horrible. But I don't necessarily agree um, for a couple reasons. One, I I have seen because I've been around for a bit, and I've seen the numbers of people passing kind of increase. So like when I passed the advanced exam in 2012, there were only 10 people in my group who passed. And in subsequent years over the past decade, I've seen that, you know, number be in the teens and twenties and and more. The the MS has been historically low. And this part of this fact of the matter is there's just a lot fewer candidates. There's just a lot fewer people at the MS exam. Now that said, at the 2018 exam, that was the that was a watershed moment because four years prior in 2014, the format of the exam changed. There were so many people who had reached that level who, because with the MS exam, you have to pass all three parts in three years. You have to restart. But from, from my understanding, there were more and more people who had reached that level who were master's candidates. And there were so many people who, frankly, there needed to be a way to, to allow these folks to test, but also like, keep it manageable. And so they separated theory from the other two parts of the exam. So theory became a gateway uh, that you had to pass the theory exam first. Once passed, once you passed theory, you could then take service and tasting. So for example, I passed in 2018 on my fifth try. So I took the theory exam in 2014 for the first time and I passed it. That's not terribly common, but I did. And other people have too. And then later that year, I took service and tasting and I passed service, but not tasting. I didn't pass tasting the next year or the next year in 2016, so I reset, which sucks, but it happens to a lot of people. So 2017 rolls around, and the same rule applies. I have to take in theory, and I pass theory. Later that year, I take service and tasting. I pass service. I don't pass tasting. I come back the next year. I pass tasting. That was true for a lot of people. So by the time you get to the the, the service and the tasting exam portion, everyone in the room, all 50, 60, 70 people, has already got at least one part down. So there's only, you know, a, and a lot of those people only needed one more part to pass. And it's not correct to assume that if you just keep taking the exam, you'll pass it. That's, there's enough people who could, who have never passed it, who would attest to that. But 
there were a lot of people at that exam who I've known most of my, you know, adult professional career, and we'd kind of come up through the ranks together. So I wasn't the least bit, I was a little surprised, but I wasn't shocked that so many people passed because so many people were so ready to pass that only had one part left who had taken the exam, you know, multiple times and were really seasoned, highly skilled sommelier professionals. Now here's the problem because it was so record setting. Um, that so many people passed. The lack of communication and explanation about the statistics of the candidate pool and those who pass has never been clearly articulated by the court. And I think that's a huge failure. And I think that led to so many people thinking that the reason that exam was, you know, invalidated had to do with the large pass rate. Because again, all the people in the room had already passed one third of the exam. And I don't know what proportion, but a large proportion of us only had to pass one more part. And so if we looked at it from a statistical standpoint, like we were all like, you know, we weren't starting at the start line at that point. And so I think that that's part of it. But if the court had ever revealed data on here's the number of people who applied, here's the number of people who tested, here's the breakdown, you know, by gender and by sector of the industry that they work in, like, that kind of data sharing where you can still protect identities would be incredibly helpful. And the if you look at the total candidate pool for the master's exam in 2018, you have to include all the people who sat for the theory exam in 2018 and didn't pass. And that's the larger number. And if you look at the number of people who passed the whole exam based on the total number of not just those of us who are in St. Louis, but those of us who also, or those who also took the theory exam that year, the percentage is actually fairly consistent with what it's been through the years, but there's a larger number of people in, in the shoot, you know, people who are are testing through this organization. So of course the pass numbers are going to go up, but I don't know if that means the pass rate changes, but that's never been clearly explained or articulated. And when you don't provide the information, people can draw whatever conclusion they want. So I, I don't a hundred percent agree with you on that one. <laughs> fair enough. Fair cool. enough. I'm, I'm over here. I'm down here in my basement right? with the, uh, with the pieces, uh, with the photos and the red uh, string. All the things together. Um, I have, I want to ask, uh, shift gears and ask about one last thing before we wrap it up here, uh, Jill, which is uh, what you're doing now for some TV and, and in yeah. particular your podcast. Do you want to talk, uh, say a little more about it? Yeah. So I, this is like peak 2020. Um, I like many others uh, started a podcast this year and it, it's really funny. I, you know, I'm a perpetual student. I just like the process. It gives me a sense of direction and sort of with my wine, with my wine focus and I like being informed. And so throughout the years in all of the different, you know, tests and things I've taken, I'm an avid collector of wine books and books are challenging because they go out of date really quickly when the world of wine moves, moves fast. But I like books for, for reference. I like books for aesthetics. I just, I'm an, I'm an avid reader. My grandmother was a librarian. Maybe that's part of it. And the thing that I've noticed, and it's over the past few years, and I think it coincides with me reaching a level of, like, I know a lot about wine. I don't know everything about wine. No one ever can, but I know a lot. And I'd be reading books and I was like, oh, that's just wrong. Wow. (laughs) And I, and I started to develop this theory that one, I I have no idea how one gets a, a publishing deal. I've never written a book. I've never, you know, tried to write a book, but from what I understand, and I have friends in the publishing industry, from what I understand, you know, like there are editors and I have friends who've published books and their editors work with them to make sure that the writing and and the facts and and things are correct. 
And I started reading these wine books and they were just full of errors. And I was like, it, and sometimes the writing was awful. And I was like, huh, either there, maybe there's a gap in the industry that I'm not aware of where there's just not editors who know enough about wine to edit a wine book. And it's not the, it's not like a widespread problem. I mean, there's wonderful, wonderful books out there, but I was reading a few books and I was like, this is just hot garbage. And so I had done like a few small feature pieces, um, like videos and stuff with the team from Psalm TV. And I was kind of joking with Jason Wise, who's the producer um, of the Psalm films and Psalm TV. And I was like, does Psalm TV need a book reviewer, like a wine book reviewer? And he was like, ha ha, call me. And so we hatched out this idea. And so it just started on a lark. And so I was furloughed for five months this summer. And so I had a lot of time on my hands, like many people. And I had never done anything like this. And so I had a very steep learning curve and some very kind and patient people. Shout outs to Jason and Nadine. Um, but it was it was very interesting to, and the the whole premise is that I would just review wine books and try to offer some informed opinion and guidance on whether it was something that, you know, I felt people should certainly buy. Maybe if they should just like give it a read and borrow it or like avoid this flashing red lights. This is garbage. And so it was really fun. And it was, you know, we recorded all these during the summer while I was furloughed. And then I had this moment before they launched and I was like, oh my God, have I been in like this weird protected, you know, isolated area where I think I we've put up something that's really clever and the population at large is going to think this is like ridiculous and absolutely like far too niche um, and of no, you know, merit in the world of wine. And thankfully that's not been the case. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the stats are in terms of like subscribers and downloads and things, but we've gotten some really positive feedback and, you know, it helps me and my goal to become well-read and, and it's, it's been a passion project and it just, it's really funny when I talk to people and they're like, wow, what'd you do this year? Like you were, you know, you weren't working for a long time. And I'm like, start a podcast. <laughs> it was my, it's my 2020 story, but it's been so awesome. And, and, uh, we took a little break, uh, for like the, the six weeks at the end of the year. Cause I got to read some more books and then we'll start back up again in January. So I'm excited. Excellent. Well, I, I'm a regular, uh, listener. Enjoy it. It's, it's fun because I also think an important thing to note about, about what Jill does with the podcast is, you know, you, you really jump around, I think for, for different you know, it's a lot of different kinds of wine books. So there's a mix of, you know, some of the kind of most famous books in the genre that are a little more academic. There's, um, although, you know, like, I assume you will never do like Wine Grapes by Jancis Robinson. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't even imagine how you would review a book like that. because It's know. just, it's just information. But if um, you've heard me fangirl about Jancis, like you can probably imagine a little bit that it would be a glowing since review. I've, but since like... I've listened to at least one episode. Yes, I have heard you fangirl <laughs> about Jancis. Um, but I don't know that that would be very good listening, you know, like. <laughs> probably not. But, but I wanted to say that, 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 uh, but what's fun is that it's also, there's also some interesting kind of wine adjacent books or at least why did Jason Rowling put it? But like, it's not all, it's not all textbooks. It's not all academic uh, books. It's a lot of, um, there's some fun books and you even reviewed sideways. <laughs> I, uh, I, I encourage people to, uh, if they have any free podcast time that's not devoted to this podcast, uh, give uh, reading and drinking a listen. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, and Jill, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a, it's been a real joy to talk with you. And, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the support and shout out for my podcast too. That's awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. 
Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Winston. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.